Hi, I'm Dr. Bob Harrington. And I'm Dr. Fatima Rodriguez. We're excited to announce our third annual Going Back to the Heart of Cardiology in San Diego, California, December 3rd through the 5th. The goal of this conference is to discuss the management of patient diagnoses, network with our peers, and learn new skills. Attend engaging presentations and participate in conference activities, including the keynote by health and fitness expert, Bob Harper. You don't want to miss it. To register, visit medscape.org slash heartofcardio22. Worldwide, cardiovascular disease affects the lives of hundreds of millions. Dedicated cardio nerds everywhere are working hard to fight this global epidemic. These are their stories. Hey, Cardio Nerds, welcome back to a very special case discussion. Particularly excited for this one as we're joined by three brilliant minds from my home institution. Guys, welcome to the show. Would you please introduce yourselves to the audience? Hey, everyone. I'm Radi Zinoviev. I'm a cardiology fellow at the Cleveland Clinic. I trained with Amit and Dan at uh, Johns Hopkins Hospital before making my way here to Cleveland. Hey, everyone. I'm, I'm Josh Cohen. I'm one of the cardiology fellows at Cleveland Clinic. Did my training at, at Mass General and planning on going into uh, advanced uh, multimodality imaging. Hi, everyone. My name is Tiffany. I am a cardiology fellow. I came from Emory for internal medicine. Wow, Roddy, Josh, and Tiffany, so great to be here with you today. And Roddy, I remember vividly our first clinical attraction. We were both working on the onc service at the time, and you were so good at oncology that I thought for sure that's where you'd be headed. But then, sure enough, you surprised you surprised me by going into cardiology, which obviously you're also a natural. And but I remember that, and also I was always jealous of your Im immaculate immaculate. I don't know if that's the right word. Bow tie. So that's great. <laughs> <laughs> Thanks, Dan. I, I did like a good bow tie back in uh, residency. Well, why don't you guys take us to your favorite spot on this beautiful day in Cleveland, and we can talk about some serious cardiology. Let's do it. I would say if I had to start, I'd say, you know, maybe Chagrin Falls, beautiful waterfall. There's nice outdoor places uh, and good places for the kids. So I'd probably be there. Oh, that sounds awesome. Honestly, if I had to pick a spot in Cleveland right now, it would actually be my, my own backyard. I've been doing a lot of projects in the past couple of weeks. Uh, just built some raised beds, which to my surprise, are actually still standing. And uh, we've been working on putting up some lights. So it's become a, a pretty nice, uh, serene spot to relax and, and really dive into cardiology. So I love both these suggestions. Chagrin Falls is absolutely phenomenal, especially with the family. So let's head over there first. But then we can after party in Roddy's backyard, which, by the way, I've been waiting for months to get my invitation. So here it is. Roddy, I'm, I'm coming. But while we're hanging out at Chagrin, guys, what case do you have for us? Let's dive in. So I'd like to tell you guys about a case that I saw in the cath lab a couple of weeks ago. It was a really interesting case of a patient who presented to Cleveland Clinic for reevaluation of exertional dyspnea. So this is a 55-year-old woman coming to us with several months of exertional dyspnea fatigue. She says her symptoms started about six months ago and have progressed pretty rapidly since that time. By the time that she was presenting to the clinic, she was only able to walk about 100 feet before needing to stop and catch her breath. Oh, that's really interesting. Did, did she have any other symptoms? Yeah, she told me that she was starting to notice some swelling in her legs, but she didn't have any cough, chest pain, or palpitations. Hmm. I'm already thinking of a, a pretty broad differential here. I think you have to start thinking about things that are, you know, primary pulmonary. You have to think of obviously, you know, cardiac things as well in terms of myopathic processes, arrhythmias, and valvular disease. And then 
other things in, in terms of anemia, severe anemia, those kind of things can all play a role here. We don't know much about her past medical history, so I think that will uh, help inform the discussion a little bit. Yeah, it absolutely does in this case. Uh, this is actually her second encounter with the clinic. She first presented about nine years ago when she was coming in with similar symptoms. At that time, she was found to have Epstein's anomaly and underwent a tricuspid valve replacement. Interesting. So, so she has a prosthetic tricuspid valve. You know, I think just as a little sidetrack here, we could certainly just talk a little bit for a second about Epstein's. I think for those who don't know, you know, this is in its most basic form, an apical displacement of the septal tricuspid leaflet. And there are sizing criteria and whatnot, but I think that's probably enough to say. You can listen to the congenital series on CardioNerds for a bit more there. You know, I've learned so much going through the ACHD series. We've learned to categorize all of these ACHD lesions, again, just very briefly, in thinking about what is a structural abnormality from there, what are the hemodynamic consequences, and then what is a clinical presentation. And just since this is a part of her history, my quick takeaways from our Epstein episode were the following. The structural abnormality is the failure of delamination of the posterior and septal leaflets. So there's, they're apically displaced in terms of where their attachment is to the RV. And you have a long sail-like anterior leaflet, which depending on the morphology may or may not have fenestrations, which can play into how much regurgitation one might have. And given this apical displacement of the tricuspid valve, you end up having a, an atrialized portion of the RV, which isn't contributing to RV contraction, and then the functional portion of the RV, which may or may not be uh, sizable enough to you know, meaningfully support cardiac output. And then you have a number of associated features, and you know, a large majority of these, 80% can have a PF4 ASD. Again, we're thinking about why our patient may have shortness of breath right now. 20% to a quarter may have WPW or uh, from accessory pathways. And then they can have other associated abnormalities. Again, all the things that we might be considering when we do our imaging for this patient and further evaluation, VSD, PDA, RVOT obstruction, coarctation, et cetera. So what are the hemodynamic consequences? Well, we said the, the functional RV may be small, and so you could have decreased cardiac output. You'll have right-sided heart failure, and so you get right-sided heart symptoms, as well as maybe even septal bowing into the LV, impeding LV inflow. You can have varying degrees of tricuspid regurgitation or even stenosis, and you can get right-to-left shunting, you know, thinking about hypoxemia and other causes of dyspnea. And then the clinical presentation are going to be all the things you get from these abnormalities, right? You get impaired exertional capacity from the shunting. You can get cyanosis or paradoxical embolism. You can have a whole host of arrhythmias, which the patient may still be predisposed to even after addressing her abnormal tricuspid valve. And then ultimately, there's also a risk of sudden cardiac death. And so this patient already comes with us with a, a rich pathophysiology and foundation for having all sorts of abnormalities when we think about the different types of cardiac failure. So I'm really curious to see what's, you know, what the functioning of her valve is, but then all of these other associated downstream impact of having Epstein anomaly. And I will say that, you know, the contemporary management is to try to favor tricuspid valve repair with the coronal reconstruction whenever possible, uh, but sometimes you just can't and then you do replacement. But with a the replacement, there are worse outcomes down the road. Roddy, what more do we know about her? Absolutely, Amit. So there are a couple of interesting things that, that you mentioned. One is that uh, tricuspid repair is the preferred surgical approach for, for patients who have symptomatic Epstein's anomaly that requires intervention. And she actually did have an attempted repair, but ended up having a valve replacement because the repair was unsuccessful. But that was their initial approach. And she had initially presented with symptoms of uh, right-sided heart failure, which is what led to this valve replacement. So to round out her HPI, her past medical history is notable for hypertension and the bioprosthetic tricuspid valve replacement nine years ago. She has no significant cardiac family history. She's a non-smoker. She doesn't drink alcohol. 
And she's fairly physically active prior to these six months of symptoms. Her only medication right now is amlodipine for blood pressure, and she does not have any allergies. So let me tell you about her physical exam. She came in with a normal sinus rhythm, but she did have a two out of six diastolic murmur that was best heard at the left lower sternal border. And that murmur became more pronounced when she took a deep breath. Her lungs were cleared to auscultation. She did have trace lower extremity edema, and her JDP was elevated about 10 centimeters above the right atrium. The rest of the physical exam was normal. So if I can summarize here, we have a, essentially a middle-aged woman here. She's got a known history of congenital heart disease in the form of Epstein's anomaly with a prior bio-TBR uh, significant time ago at this point. And now she's presenting with, you know, at least a concern for, for heart failure. Like I said, I still think the, the differential here is pretty broad, but she's at least presenting with, with a decrement in, in functional capacity. Roddy had mentioned a diastolic murmur on the exam here. And as with any murmur, I think it's, you know, it's fairly important to characterize the timing, right? So is it in Sicily? Is it in diastole? Is it early? Is it mid? Is it late? And then where's it heard best? So we kind of heard left lower sternal border, diastolic, you know, and then the character and any associated sounds, right? So is there an opening uh, snap? Are there clicks? Those kind of things. And how does it vary with inspiration or expiration? And so classically, we think of right-sided lesions becoming more prominent with inspiration. So at least... You know, at this point, I'm, I'm starting to build a bit of a differential here. Definitely. And we're already thinking about this tricuspid valve as a possible culprit to her symptoms. And when we heard this increase in the severity of the murder where she took a deep breath, that really increased the probability for us. Because when a patient takes a deep breath, there's a drop in the intrathoracic pressure and that increases venous return. And that will augment the gradient between the right atrium and the right ventricle in this, in this patient. And so you're saying that this, this increase in the murmur, the diastolic murmur is tipping you off that there's potentially tricuspid stenosis going on, creating that murmur? Totally. Yeah. And I, you know, I think as we characterize this more, I didn't have the pleasure of listening to her, but I think if we heard some sort of mid diastolic murmur here at the, you know, left sternal border or left lower sternal border, you know, I'd certainly be thinking of a mitral area tricuspid inflow obstruction. You know, classically these murmurs, when you talk about TS and MS are, are pretty hard to hear. But, you know, if, if we were hearing everything we could, I think you're, you're listening for an opening snap followed by a low pitched diastolic rumble. And generally these have some sort of pre-systolic accentuation and that's due to the atrial kick increasing that gradient towards the end. That certainly depends whether or not she's in sinus rhythm though. Oh, that's a beautiful pearl. I love that. Exactly. We're starting to hone in our differential. We have several clues pointing towards some right-sided lesions or uh, a primary pulmonary process. First, she's presenting with venous congestion and symptoms of right-sided heart failure without the pulmonary edema you'd expect to see with left-sided heart failure. Her exam shows a diastolic murmur, uh, and all these things are making us think that either this is bioprosthetic tricuspid stenosis, pulmonary hypertension, problems with the pulmonic valve, but overall, something that's going on in the right side of the heart or the pulmonary arteries. Roddy, Josh, Tiffany, I love it because people are getting a sense of why I love working with you guys day in and day out, taking care of patients. All we have so far is a history and physical exam and already have such a great hypothesis for what may be going on, but, but you're also staying broad, right? And when I think of how Dan categorizes different types of cardiac failure, right? The valvular failure, myocardial failure, pericardial failure, electrical failure, coronary failure. Maybe say for the coronary failure, this patient is at risk for 
for everything, actually just by virtue of having Epstein, right? She's got a primary, you know, you can think of it as an RV myocardial failure. She's got reasons for having valvular heart disease. She still has an electrical system that is associated with Epstein's anomaly. So there is a wealth of differential diagnoses that could be explaining or contributing to our patient's symptoms, but we were off to the races. We're off to a great start. What did you find with the upfront data, labs, chest x-ray, EKG, and where did you go from there? Her labs were remarkable for an elevated ProBNP of 600 but otherwise normal, normal creatinine, their electrolytes, CBC were all normal. Her chest x-ray was also normal with the exception of some post-surgical changes from her prior sternotomy, but no pulmonary edema or pulmonary vascular congestion that we saw on the chest x-ray. So her EKG showed normal sinus rhythm with an incomplete right bundle branch block that's classic for Epstein's anomaly. Interestingly, she did not have any deltal wave pointing it towards an accessory pathway. She did have some findings that were concerning for RV strain. These included T-wave inversions in the lateral leads and a little bit in the inferior leads. Roddy, obviously you've given us a lot here. I, I think there are still a ton of things I'm concerned about, you know, specifically regarding the right side of her heart. I, I'd love to know, presumably she had an echo early on. I'd love to know what that showed. Hey guys, so I'm down in the echo lab looking at her surface echo images. Looks like she has a normal left ventricular size and function but her RV is dilated and so is her right atrium. The systolic function of her right ventricle appears to be reduced. And then we saw at least some moderate tricuspid regurgitation, but it's very difficult to actually see the tricuspid valve itself. The highest mean gradient that we're getting down here is uh, four millimeters of mercury. You know, and, that, and that's interesting. I think, you know, we probably could have guessed that some of those findings would be there. She has some decrement in RV systolic function, and then there's something going on with that valve. I think we can probably all agree. I may take a second here just to talk about some of the transthoracic findings of tricuspid valvular disease. I'll start with tricuspid stenosis. There's a fairly low prevalence of this disease, and so there's not a lot of studies here, and there's actually just proposed criteria. This valvular lesion didn't even make the, the 2020 valve guidelines. And so in general, you know, you're looking for any kind of significant flow acceleration or aliasing of color across the tricuspid valve. You're looking for a mean pressure gradient that's greater than five millimeters of mercury. You look for a valve area that's less than one centimeter squared is usually done by uh, continuity. You can sometimes also use uh, planimetry with uh, TEE and 3D reconstruction. You're looking for a pressure half time of greater than 190 milliseconds. And again, these are extrapolated from the mitral valve study. So, so take that with a grain of salt. And then you're looking for an inflow VTI of greater than 60 centimeters. Now, supportive things, when you, you look at the echo, or you're looking for right atrium that's dilated, usually significantly dilated. You're looking for a dilated IVC. But again, these are nonspecific findings. You know, so when you're thinking of about, about a prosthetic valve, specifically in this case, you have to be also be looking for evidence of panis or thrombus or vegetation, things that would be specific there. The other things, you know, specific to this case would be something like patient prosthetic mismatch. She had this valve a while ago. I'm not so certain I heard the size of the valve, but that's also something to consider. And then when you look at a native tricuspid valve, if you're thinking of stenosis, there's a, you know, a classically frozen leaflet, which is seen in some of the more rare syndromes like carcinoid, or you get diastolic doming, which is again, a sign that this may be rheumatic. And so I think those are all things you have to consider when you're looking at this echocardiogram. Josh, that was absolutely masterful. And I'm not coming in here to teach anything on top of that beautiful differential diagnosis and precise approach to the echo in this setting. But I do want to draw the audience into this amazing image 
uh, particular set of images and definitely check out the website, but uh, particularly the Doppler and also the, the flow, color flow through the tricuspid, you could just really get a great appreciation of that turbulence that's flowing from the right atrium into the right ventricle. It's just absolutely remarkable. Thanks, Josh. That was an awesome review of echo findings for tricuspid valve pathology. We're next going to take a trip to my favorite place in the hospital, the cath lab. And we're going to get some invasive hemodynamics and confirm that tricuspid valve gradient that Tiffany told us about. Invasive hemodynamic measurement of the tricuspid valve gradient is something that we rarely do these days, but it can be a very powerful tool for confirming tricuspid stenosis. As Josh already said, this is a very rare disease. And even though echocardiogram uh, is a great tool for assessing the severity, it can sometimes underestimate the amount of tricuspid stenosis. And in that case, the cath lab can be an awesome place to confirm what you're already thinking. And in invasive hemodynamics as a means of assessing tricuspid stenosis has been used since the 1950s, preceding the advent of two-dimensional echocardiography in the 1970s. So the first thing we found in the cath lab was a high A wave due to the atrial contraction against a stenotic tricuspid valve and high V waves caused by tricuspid regurgitation. The measurements we obtained were a right atrial pressure of 20, RV pressure of 26 over 2, PA pressure of 23 over 8, with a mean pulmonary artery pressure of 13, and a pulmonary capillary wedge pressure of 8. The cardiac index was low normal, and it calculated to 2.4 liters per minute per meter squared by both thermal dilution and thick principle. It sounds like, you know, you have normal pressures in the left atrium, pulmonary artery, and left ventricle, but very high right atrial pressure of 20 and a normal RV diastolic pressure of two. And again, like you mentioned, very impressive A and B wave tracings. Exactly. And when the tricuspid valve is normal, the RV diastolic and RA pressure should be equal. But when we measure simultaneous RA and RV pressures, we found a mean tricuspid valve gradient of 10 millimeters of mercury. And again, as Josh told us, there aren't a lot of studies looking at tricuspid stenosis because the disease is so rare. But the criteria we use in the cath lab are the same as what we use in echocardiography. So severe TS is a gradient above five and her gradient of 10 more than qualified. And we calculated a tricuspid valve area of 0.75 centimeters squared, meeting criteria for severe tricuspid stenosis. I think this is great that we actually got the invasive hemodynamics here. You know, for multiple reasons, I think we're considering a, a repeat operation in this woman. And I think we want to know about her pulmonary pressures, which turned out to be normal. If we could, we wanted to know about the invasive hemodynamics of the RV, although I think the caveat here is using something like a PAPI for her probably wouldn't be appropriate, right, given that the RA pressure is 20 and that's not necessarily a marker of RV function in this setting because of the severe tricuspid stenosis. So I think that that's one caveat there. But otherwise, these are, these are really nice to define what's going on. Roddy, thanks so, so much for going over these cath numbers and just looking at the profile that you showed and we reviewed, you could really appreciate the conundrum here of what's going on with this patient. You clearly have this gradient across the tricuspid valve and just like disproportionate elevated right atrial pressure compared to all the other pressures in the heart. And obviously we see that that could be a problem. You know, if you diurese that CVP, you know, you may end up having hypoperfusion on the kidney side, but yet you still have the renovascular congestion. And so you could see why these types of situations usually require some sort of intervention going forward. And I'm just curious, how did you measure the simultaneous pressures in the right atrium and the right ventricle? What was the actual technique that you used to get those pressures? 
So we ended up connecting the CBP port and the RV ports to separate pressure transducers so that we can obtain simultaneous measurements of the RA and the right ventricle. No, terrific. Thanks for uh, sharing that technique. Yeah, I'm so glad you guys are going over this case because, uh, Josh, as you mentioned, tricuspid stenosis didn't even make it into the latest valvular heart disease guidelines from 2020. Do you guys have an approach for tricuspid stenosis, how you think about it in your mind and uh, how you take it back to the patient? Yes. Yeah, that's a great question, Amit. So when thinking about tricuspid stenosis, like you mentioned, didn't even make it to the 2020 valve guidelines, sadly. It's very uncommon, found in less than 1% of the U.S. population, but in other parts of the world can affect about 3% or more patients living in countries where we think rheumatic fever is still endemic. Because it's so rare, we just don't have enough evidence to base guidelines on, including both with diagnostic purposes and intervention. So when you think about native tricuspid valve stenosis, we tend to think of etiologies being rheumatic heart disease, endocarditis, carcinoid, cardiac masses, radiation, congenital lesions, or maybe by external devices that we place, uh, such as ICDs or pacemakers that lead to fibrosis along the tricuspid valves. So Josh already briefly covered the wonderful differential for prosthetic valve tricuspid stenosis, listing panis, thrombus, vegetation, and patient prostheses mismatch. Um, and then clinically, how do these patients present? Uh, usually they're asymptomatic. Only about a third on autopsy studies actually had clinically significant disease. Yeah, Tiffany, that's exactly right. And our patient likely had asymptomatic disease for quite a while before she presented However, when symptoms do occur, it can be rapidly progressive. Because of the low pressure nature of the venous system, even mild increases in tricuspid valve gradients can worsen symptoms of congestion and exercise fatigue. Roddy, let me ask you this question. You know, this patient, as you pointed out a few times, has like not as much lung pathology going on, right? We don't have the congestion. We don't have evidence of that in any way, shape or form on exam and history or on imaging. And now we've confirmed that makes sense by our cath numbers. So why do you think the, the patient presents with dyspnea when her primary problem seems to be more of a congestive issues, you know, venous congestion and everywhere else? So what, what, what do you think is contributing to the dyspnea in this particular patient? That's an excellent question, Dan. Initially, when, when we heard her story, we were concerned about low cardiac output. We were concerned about something else affecting the left side of her heart. And Josh already mentioned that uh, ischemia is often on our differential. Her left heart catheterization showed normal coronary arteries. We didn't see any left-sided valvular lesions. So I think the, I mean, the problem is that she just, she can't augment her cardiac output as she's exercising because she's got this very, very tight lesion. And so as she starts trying to exercise, her perfusion just doesn't match the demand. And, and that's why she's becoming dyspneic. Roddy, I really appreciate that. It definitely makes sense. You know, this patient has a fixed orifice and to get the right amount of blood through is just problematic. And this particularly makes sense that she's coming in with dyspnea with exertion, right? Which she's probably has this fixed cardiac output and then raising the heart rate, particularly in tricuspid stenosis and mitral stenosis raises the gradient typically, makes it even worse. So we could really appreciate that. She is just uh, not able to get that cardiac output to allow her to exercise. And so it really matches with her symptoms. And now that we understand the pathology and the lesion, and we also talked about a little bit before that you know, this is not something that's easily medically managed. Tiffany, you've taught us so much about tricuspid stenosis. What would be the typical next steps for a patient like this? Well, given that she is symptomatic, I think, you know, we would have to intervene on it. 
like we mentioned before, there's a huge lack of trial data to drive any significant guidelines for coming out. So when we think of these patients, typically they're severe tricuspid stenosis and undergoing left-sided surgery, then they tend to intervene on the uh, tricuspid valve. Uh, in terms of options for intervention, there's surgical replacement um, being the most optimal outcome, and then also uh, balloon valvuloplasty or valvulotomy, which typically is reserved for patients who are poor surgical candidates. And these patients also have to have less than mild TR because we are increasing tricuspid regurgitation across that valve with that intervention. Tiffany, thanks so much for going over those. I wanted to loop back and explain why this patient had a bioprosthetic valve when she first had her surgery nine years ago. At that time, she was 46 years old, and had she had a left-sided lesion like mitral or aortic valve disease, she likely would have had a mechanical valve placed. However, there are two factors that contribute to our preference for a bioprosthetic valve in the tricuspid position. The first is that the slow flow of blood because of the low gradients of the right side of the heart increased the risk of valve thrombosis for mechanical valves. Similarly, because blood is flowing through a smaller gradient, the bioprosthetic valves have a comparatively longer longevity when they're put into the right side of the heart as compared to the left side of the heart. So those are the two reasons that you classically see people with tricuspid disease who have a valve replacement come in with a bioprosthetic valve. Yeah, Roddy. So that that's a really interesting point about, you know, uh, bioprosthesis versus uh, mechanical valves. And I think the other thing here is, you know, there's not an insignificant risk with these surgeries and then especially a re-op. And so for, for example, the 10-year mortality associated with tricuspid valve surgery is about as high as 10%. And certainly that that far exceeds the the mortality that we see associated with aortic and, uh, and mitral valve surgery. Now, most of this data is from patients with tricuspid regurgitation rather than stenosis. And I think the other thing to remember here is most of these patients, by the time we operate, are very symptomatic and usually have some sort of concomitant RV dysfunction or pulmonary hypertension. And so, you know, I think that certainly plays into the discussion. This woman was going to be a, a reoperation. The surgery is, is associated with high morbidity and mortality. And so having it done in a, a specialized center is certainly important as well. Absolutely. And Josh, you're already hinting at the next steps that we followed for this patient. To summarize, we have a middle-aged woman who's coming to us with six months of dyspnea, and we found severe tricuspid stenosis on echo, confirmed it with a right heart catheterization, and measured a low normal cardiac output. Because of her significant symptoms and the severity of her disease, we did end the proceeding with redo tricuspid valve surgery. She went to the OR with Dr. Pedersen and had re-replacement of the tricuspid valve with a size 33 bioprosthetic valve. When they explanted the old valve, pathology showed severe panis and mild calcification of the bioprosthetic valve. She did really well with the surgery and she was discharged one week postoperatively. And a repeat echocardiogram at that point showed trace TR and a peak ending gradient of 10 and 4. So kind of to, to put this case together, it seems like based on the surgical pathology that we received, her final diagnosis would be tricuspid stenosis related to panis of a prosthetic tricuspid valve replacement. Roddy, this was such a great case. Thank you so much for uh, sharing it with us. Yeah, thanks so much, everyone. This has been really awesome. You know, I think when we talk about maybe key takeaways for this case, for me, I think, as Amit and Dan had said in the beginning, I think staying broad, right? Obviously, someone has a history and that has to 
very much play into your differential and what goes on. But I think in my mind and someone who has had a prior open heart surgery, my focus tends to start there to at least make sure there's not, you know, something going on. And so if someone's had a prior, you know, open heart surgery, prosthetic valve or what be it, you know, I think that has to be something that takes uh, your attention to start. You know, is there something wrong with XYZ process? Is it a recurrent process? process? Is it a result of that known history of Epstein's? And so I think that's, you know, that's my biggest takeaway here. Josh, Tiffany, Roddy, this has been such a great case discussion. I've been so excited to have you guys on the podcast and excited for everyone to see, you know, the kind of people I get to work with and learn from every day. And best of all, the patient, thankfully, with your thoughtful care and expertise of the team, had a great outcome. Thank you so much for teaching us today. Hope to have you guys back soon. Thanks so much. Thank you. Thanks a lot, Dan. Wow, what a fabulous discussion that was. Friends, the expert commentary and review for ECPR is provided by Dr. Che Ramchand, staff cardiologist with expertise in multimodality cardiovascular imaging at the Cleveland Clinic. Dr. Ramchand earned his medical degree and doctor of physiology at the University of Melbourne. He completed residency and cardiology training at Austin Health in Victoria, Australia, and finally fellowship in cardiovascular imaging at the Cleveland Clinic, where we were fortunate to keep him on as staff. Dr. Ramchand, thank you so much for your comments. Hello, everyone. Thank you so much for having me on board to talk about treatment options for tricuspid stenosis. Before getting started, I just wanted to mention what a big fan I am of the Cardio Nerds podcast. I started listening when you guys first started, and it's truly an honor to get to join in and say a few words. Getting back to tricuspid stenosis, as mentioned earlier, it's unfortunately not covered in the 2020 ACC valvular heart disease guidelines. It is very briefly covered in the 2021 European Society of Cardiology guidelines. The recommendations are quite generic. This is probably because tricuspid stenosis in isolation is an uncommon lesion, so management is really guided by expert guidelines rather than evidence-based trials. To cut to the chase, the cornerstone of management of symptomatic tricuspid stenosis, be it on a native valve or prosthetic valve, is some type of valvular intervention. This is because it's a mechanical issue, and in my experience looking after such patients, by the time these patients manifest clinical symptoms, the degree of tricuspid stenosis is usually advanced and medical therapy alone tends to be insufficient. As a temporizing measure, however, diuretic therapy can help alleviate congestion prior to any intervention. This has to be done very carefully, as a lot of these patients will have low output states, and diuretic use can be limited by this and therefore can destabilize patients. Specific management of tricuspid stenosis really depends on the underlying cause, and so the diagnostic evaluation is therefore very critical. Josh Raddy and Tiffany have elegantly discussed the tenets of the diagnostic evaluation. So let's go through possible etiologies and their management. Isolated tricuspid stenosis from something like rheumatic heart disease would be exceedingly rare without concurrent mitral valve disease. In theory, the management for this would usually be a tricuspid valve replacement or a percutaneous balloon valvuloplasty, though there's far less experience with this compared to, say, balloon mitral valvuloplasty. Another possible etiology is infective endocarditis, and where appropriate antimicrobial therapy will be needed in addition to surgery. Another possible etiology of tricuspid stenosis is a large right heart tumor causing obstruction of flow through the tricuspid valve. There may be referral bias in our center, but we do see a number of these cases per year. Questions to ask are, is this a benign lesion like a myxoma that needs complete surgical resection, or is it a malignant tumor like angiosarcoma? that may be very well inoperable at the time of presentation. So imaging is really key. 
Yes, tricuspidinosis is part of a more systemic process like hypersynophilic or carcinoid syndrome, which have specific treatments in addition to possible surgery. Or is it severe tricuspidinosis from multiple pacemaker leads that may need to be removed? So with that in mind, what type of surgical or interventional procedures do we need to know about and what are the long-term outcomes? For the vast majority of patients, particularly with low to moderate surgical risk, tricuspid valve surgery by either a repair or replacement is indicated. If the patient has prohibitive surgical risk and they have isolated severe tricuspid without significant TR, a balloon valvuloplasty may be considered. That said, this situation is not very common and I personally have only seen this a couple of times. For patients with severe tricuspid with significant left-sided disease, we would obviously recommend surgery with either repair or replacement. With regards to the choice of repair versus replacement, the discretion is ultimately with the surgeon and dependent on the extent of valvular and subvalvular disease. With regards to outcomes, overall mortality with any tricuspid surgery was about 10% in a large study of over 28,000 patients. Though this mortality rate is high, it's encouragingly decreasing with time. This study importantly had only 20% of patients who had isolated tricuspid valve surgery and the majority of these patients had tricuspid regurgitation as a predominant lesion. Hospital mortality was higher in those who had a tricuspid valve replacement rather than repair, but there were likely a lot of confounding factors that influenced this, so we can't really infer that repair is necessarily superior to replacement. One thing to note is that the rate of pacemaker implantation tends to be higher with replacement rather than repair. Similarly, what about the choice of bioprosthetic or mechanical valves? Available data don't suggest one approach is superior. The most recent ENC guidelines slightly fair bioprosthetic valves due to its satisfactory long-term durability. Very lastly, what about prosthetic valve stenosis? If there is concern for bioprosthetic valve thrombosis based on imaging factors, a trial of anticoagulation is warranted. In those with prosthetic tricuspid stenosis due to suspected panis or calcification, the treatment options are either surgery or possibly transcatheter intervention if the surgical risk is prohibitive.